All right, everybody, go be great. Episode 11 presented to you by Hardo Sports. Michael Contento bringing it to you once again. I'm fired up, folks. Um, it's July 28th. Well, it's just about to be July 28th. It's about midnight. Um, and the Yankees have had a little bit of a rough stretch. I'm going to mostly talk about the Yankees in this podcast episode. Um, obviously, Old Yankee Stadium is the cover art for this podcast, so it should be no surprise to any of my viewers. Um, so I'm going to start out with this day in sports history because I feel like it kind of has some ties to most of what I'll talk about today, which will be most of recapping the last week in what has happened with the New York Yankees. And then I will talk a little bit about the Mets because the Subway Series concluded tonight with the Mets sweeping the Yankees two games to nothing. Um, a crazy game number one that featured a couple of home runs in the first. And then uh, tonight, an awesome start for Max Scherzer. He, he dominated the Yankees lineup. Glaber Torres had a two-run homer to tie it in the eighth, and then Starling Marte with an RBI walk-off single in the ninth. So on this day in sports history in 1996, Daryl Strawberry walked off the Kansas City Royals with a two-run homer to win by a score of 3-2. to two. That was number 300 in his long career that spanned across – about 15 years, he played with the Mets, he played with the Yankees, and he also spent some time with the Los Angeles Dodgers and the San Francisco Giants. So just thought that it was a pretty cool way to start off this podcast because I'm going to talk about the Yankees. I'm going to talk about the Mets. Um, during that 1996 season, Daryl Strawberry was traded to the Yankees. Um, and I'm going to talk about a trade that the Yankees made within like the last hour or so. So, um, all right, we'll start off, you know, I'm going to go in chronological order. I know that, you know, you probably would rather hear it, uh, in importance level, which would be the trade. And then what happened, you know, this week and go backwards, but I'm going to start from where I left off, which was the all-star weekend. So. Giancarlo Stan won the uh, All-Star Game MVP with a 457-foot home run that uh, tied up the game uh, early. I believe that was the third inning of the All-Star Game in Los Angeles. Byron Buxton followed him up with a solo home run, and that was all that the All-Star, the AL All-Stars needed to defeat the NL All-Stars by a score of three to two. Now, unfortunately for Giancarlo Stan. Um, Shortly after, you know, the Yankees then went on to play Houston in a doubleheader on Thursday, which I'll get into in a second. And then we have since played the Orioles and the Mets. Um, he has been on the IL with left Achilles tendonitis. So we're going to see how that affects him going forward, whether he'll be um, limited to his, you know, going out in the field, which would be really good for the Yankees lineup the way that it's looking, you know, to be constructed going down the stretch. Um, so we're going to have to keep our eye on that. And hopefully he is going to be okay and is going to be back in the lineup very shortly. Um, another quick note about the All-Star game. I know that there was a lot of controversy with the – and there always is controversy with the whole 
miking up the major league baseball players, whether it be during a spring training game. Um, you know, recently we've seen on Sunday night baseball, whether it be out in the field or um, also that they like to do like, you know, during a half inning talking with a starting pitcher who's not playing or talking with someone who's not going to get up that inning. Um, I'm a fan of it. I feel like marketing the players is the way to go. And this was one of the first times that MLB has kind of gotten it right. You know, they had, uh, and unfortunately it was only the AL All-Stars. It kind of seemed like there was not really much to hear. You know, they. I think if they maybe talked to Juan Soto, it might have been it. Um, but otherwise they only talked to AL All-Stars, which included Julio Rodriguez, which he's not on my notes, but what a performance Julio Rodriguez put on. I mean, first of all, I think I talked about the home run derby um, early on, but his first round, he has 32 home runs, which is almost absurd given the new format where it's rapid swings for three minutes, and then you get an extra minute based on how many times you've hit a a 440 foot home run um crazy then uh he had a good game i forget exactly what he did but now the mariners just today uh had an afternoon game he hits a three-run home run to win um it was a day game and the manager scott service goes on the podium after the game saying you know julio rodriguez looked at me and he said that his bat was sleeping because it was a day game. So he switched his bat. He goes up there with a different bat. It's a three-run homer. He's getting in, up to the point, and I think the Mariners are coming to town in early August to play the Yankees. Uh, first of all, I would love to go see him play and just, you know, just to get to see the Yankees play anyway, but it's always an added bonus when there's a player on the other team that you want to see. Um, he's getting to the point where, like, you refer to him by one name, like he is Julia. There's no, you don't have to say his last name. You know who we're talking about. He is that good right now. The Mariners are making a push to try to be one of those wild card teams. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with them. But it was pretty cool with the whole mic'd up um, things that they had going on. And specifically, they had Nestor Cortez during his inning, um, as well as uh, Jose Trevino while they were working together. So I thought that was really awesome, especially just for Yankees fans to eat that stuff up. Um, you know, both of those stories in terms of how they're doing this year and where they've come from in terms of their baseball career have been amazing. And, you know, you can only hope that they keep it up. Nestor Cortez has the best ERA on the team. Uh, Trevino is the starting catcher. So, uh, it's been an awesome story for both of them. It was cool to see them on the brightest stage. And, you know, I'm sure even, and I know that uh, during his mic'd up at that, Trevino was like, oh, my God, it's so crazy that I'm really here. Like, this is unbelievable. Then he lines one down the first baseline for a single. Um, I'm sure that they felt like, holy crap, like there are guys that you can only dream about playing with or, you know, being mentioned in the same group as, and we're here with them. We deserve this spot. So shout out to both of them. I thought that was all sort of cool content coming from the All-Star game. So that brought us to last Tuesday. Um, now we're on Thursday because the Yankees were one of eight teams that played on Thursday because of 
the lockout. So the lockout happened uh, in the offseason this year. And the way that the Yankees schedule was originally um, was originally formatted, their first seven games were going to be uh, three games against the Houston Astros in Houston, four games against the Texas Rangers in Texas. So the way that the MLB figured this all out with the schedule is they added the Rangers series. So I don't know how that works out for every other team, but the Rangers series is at the end of the season. I believe that it is a Monday to Wednesday four-game series with a Tuesday doubleheader. And the Yankees had a random game in Houston before the All-Star break just kind of worked in. I think it was at the end of June, maybe in the beginning of July. I'm not really sure. And then they threw this doubleheader Thursday after the All-Star game. No wonder half the team gets hurt. Uh, specifically guys, well, one guy who was in the All-Star game and was probably traveling around a lot. So needless to say, going into Houston, I didn't really feel like there was going to be a lot of excitement for us. I thought just, first of all, we haven't had much luck in Houston anyway, um, playing in Houston specifically. Uh, so they also have the home field advantage. I also believe that there were not that many Astros in the All-Star game. Uh, Alvarez probably stayed home because he was on the IL. I know Kyle Tucker was in the game. But other than him, I feel like maybe Verlander was there. But they all stayed in Houston. So it was obviously going to be um, their advantage in this doubleheader. And they did take advantage. They won. Game one by a score of three to two with a walk-off infield single, I think it was. And then in game number two, they win seven to five. So they sweep the Yankees in Houston. Scheduling is rough once again because eight teams only played. Um, the Yankees were a doubleheader as well as the Athletics. And I'm not sure who they played, to be honest with you. But then there were two other games. It was the Marlins and the Rangers and the Giants and the Dodgers. Obviously, the Dodgers also did not have to travel, and the Giants didn't have to travel too far from San Francisco to play in Los Angeles. So, really, the Yankees kind of got screwed with the scheduling. But um, at the end of the day, uh, it's baseball. It is a tough schedule, but you have to be able to win at whatever, you know, you might have people missing. You might have uh, a tougher, you know, schedule than the other team in terms of days off and travel and whatnot. But you got to win. Uh, and they did not. You know, I think going into the postseason, this kind of will show you – well, not, I don't want to say show. There's two things that the Yankees need to ensure happen in the playoffs one i guess is before the playoffs they need to finish with a better record than the astros because they cannot play more games in minute Maid park than they do in yankee stadium if that's going to be the alcs matchup i think we've already seen that happen twice it hasn't worked out twice i'd listen i think yankee fans in terms of the record this year have gotten a bit carried away in terms of like 
we're way better than these teams because our, you know, our record was at one point 64 and 28. Now it's about, I think 66 and 32 or 33. Um, I think they get carried away because at the end of the day, when you get to the playoffs, every team is zero and zero. You know, you saw at the Nationals in 2019, like they were the hottest team in terms of from may 31st on but then you know they had to win an, a wild card game they got hot off you know after a big seventh inning uh against i forget what team they played that was a long time ago but you know they got hot in the playoffs and they were able to ride that out all the way to a world series championship there's no saying that that can't be you know one of the teams that is a wild card this year or maybe the Astros, maybe it's the Yankees. Who knows? You're only going to find out in the playoffs. But just because we have a four-and-a-half game lead over these teams does not mean that we are head and shoulders better. And you saw that this week. The Yankees get swept in Houston. The Yankees get swept in New York by the Mets. Those are two teams that are likely going to be there as the last four teams standing uh, in the playoffs in October. And... You know, you take your licks now. Hopefully you learn from it and, you know, there's some strategy going into if you had to, you know, you have to play the Mets twice more, but those are at Yankee Stadium during the regular season. The next time you play Houston is going to be in the playoffs, if you know, if at all. So you finish with a better record than Houston and you just try to forget what has happened in Houston whether it be the previous ALCSs or this year, uh, I think you just have to kind of, you know, scrub it clean. I liked what Aaron Boone said when he was asked. Um, I forget what how the the question was posed, but he basically said, like, listen, we're not going to make this anything bigger than it is. Like last year, we. You know, last year we played six games against this team. They only led us for two innings. They walked us off twice. The same thing has happened to the Yankees this year. They're two and five against the Astros. The only two wins they have are walk-off wins. So they haven't led the Astros once. But you can't make it more than what it is. All you can do is control the next at-bat in front of you, the next pitch, you know, the next nine innings, whatever it is. Uh, but you can't fit. you can't fix what happened in the past and you can't be sweating about it, you know. If it's going to be game one in Houston in the ALCS, you know, that's a big it's a big game to have. So I think a big thing for them is to finish with a better record, and right now they haven't looked as good, but, you know, that's not to say that they can't go on another run. Um, and they just need to kind of wipe the slate clean in terms of, you know, don't want to think about some of these games that have happened here in – the first week after the all-star break, especially against these two teams, the Houston Astros and the New York Mets. So between those two series, um, the Yankees went down to Baltimore and they took two of three against the Orioles. Aaron judge won the player of the week in the American league. He went nine for 19 with four home runs. Um, he had eight of those nine hits and eight RBI just in Baltimore. Um, I'm pretty sure the stats will tell you that in his career at Camden Yards, he's hitting like 350 with like 22 or 23 home runs. Um, pretty crazy. You know, they move the fences back 
this year. Uh, I think because they wanted to lower the amount of times that the division could homer against them. And the Orioles have obviously had a better year. I don't think it's just because of that. I think they have a real hope in terms of like the clubhouse morale and vibe. Like they never went into the season thinking like, Oh, we're just going to be the last place Orioles again this year. Um, And it's shown on the baseball field, like that one game that they won against the, the Yankees, they were, First of all, it was against Garrett Cole. So that is an impressive feat in and of itself. You know, Garrett Cole tried to stay out there. It was the day after Michael King was lost due to a uh, season-ending elbow fracture, which that's always pretty rough. I mean, Michael King was having a good year, arguably an all-star season. And for anyone to go down and, uh, first of all, immediately you know he's out for the year. Like, you're never pointing at your elbow as a pitcher who throws like that, especially who's like sweeping his arm across his body. Um, You never are reaching for your elbow immediately and staying in the game or really having much of a chance of staying in at all during the season. The good part is it wasn't his UCL, which would require Tommy John surgery, in which case you would maybe see Michael King uh, in August or September of next year which would be horrible. So at least in this sense, he will be throwing probably by October or November. He probably won't come back. Like, I, they, I think they announced that it's season ending, and if it, they didn't, there's no way he's coming back because the only way he'd come back is for the World Series, which would make no sense. Um, so maybe you dodge a bullet there because it's not Tommy John, but... In terms of the clubhouse, you could tell that it took a toll. And in that game, the bullpen was kind of – it was the Saturday game against uh, the Orioles. Garrett Cole had about 99 pitches or so going into the seventh inning. He begged to stay in there, and he got shelled. And the Orioles ended up winning that game by a score of 6-3 to three after he gave up two runs uh, in the set. So, um. All that to say that the Orioles' energy has been there all season. They have been getting progressively better over the last couple of years. Now they have some real good players, Cedric Mullins being one of them. Trey Mancini was always there and really a fantastic right fielder and first baseman, So especially at the plate. So they've had a few different guys that have stepped up their game this year. They've also had a few guys that have come into their own that were you know, showing flashes of it in the last couple of seasons. Um, They moved back the fence, but those fences ain't going to do much on a pair of 450-foot-plus bombs from Aaron Judge in that Friday night game. So uh, everything was all good there in Baltimore. Like I said, really tough to lose Michael King for the season. Aaron Judge had a great series. Um, Nestor Cortez shut it down on Sunday, I think, in four starts in Camden Yards in his career. He has like a 0.4 ERA. I also remember him, I think it was uh, either Easter or maybe Mother's Day, one of those times, uh, another Sunday game, a Sunday afternoon game against the Orioles. He shoved this year. Uh, I think it was like a seven-inning start. So this year he's had great success there in his career, great success. Um, 
who knows, maybe the Orioles will end up making the playoffs and he'll get another chance to go down there. I'm not sure how the schedule looks for the rest of the year. I don't know if we go back down to Baltimore, which also you could probably call it Yankee Stadium South. It seemed like there was a lot of Yankee fans there, even though the Orioles are amidst a playoff run. So um, moving on from Baltimore, the Yankees had a off day in New York on Monday before the Subway Series, the first two games of the Subway Series, which the next two are at some point in August at Yankee Stadium. But City Field hosted the first two games. And first of all, it was an absolutely um, crazy scene, seemingly from TV. You know, I watched uh, game number one, switching back and forth between Yes and SNY. And then game number two tonight, or, you know, earlier yesterday, today, whatever you want to call it, um, was on ESPN. So I tuned into that one. Uh, Game one. Aaron Judge and Rizzo go back-to-back off of Taiwan Walker in the first, but the Mets answer with a Starling Marte home run and a Eduardo Escobar home run, also a Pete Alonso RBI double. So they took the lead 4-2, and they never looked back. The Yankees had one chance uh, to really, you know, maybe take the lead in the game. Anthony Rizzo is in a 3-0 count with the bases loaded and two outs, but he flew out to the track. And that was the last chance that the Yankees really had um, before they lost 5-3, I believe, in game one. Um, like I said earlier, maybe I didn't say it earlier, I felt like with the pitching matchups between the Yankees and the Mets in these games, uh, especially with Stanton out, who kind of kills the Mets, um, you know, Taiwan Walker versus... Montgomery, I felt like, was our better chance to win. Um, We had chances to win in both games. You know, there was not a lot of hitting with runners in scoring position. There was also some some interesting moves from Aaron Boone, which we haven't really seen, you know, everybody on Twitter calling it 2021 all over again. There was definitely some questionable moves from the manager of the New York Yankees, Aaron Boone, but I I wouldn't go as far to say that. I mean... For the most part, he has made all of the right turns, right steps, uh, right talking points this this year. Obviously, it's a little bit easier when your team's winning games like they're going out of style. But um, the Joey Gallo move for IKF in the eighth inning where IKF is coming up as a tying run, I know it didn't work out, and I know it was a pretty – predictable result especially against Edwin Diaz but Aaron Boone kind of had a point uh at that point of the game it's the top of the eighth with two outs Adam Adovino is in the game he is tough on right-handed hitters so you want to get a lefty in there you also want to like your best chance to defeat Edwin Diaz is by making him come in for a four-out save to be completely honest with you because if he comes in in the ninth inning I mean Clay Holmes has been the best closer in the, in the American League. By far the best closer in the National League has been Edwin Diaz. And I'm pretty sure in terms of the runs he has given up, they were all like in April. Like he is on a big streak of just coming in and shutting the door, shutting the door. I think I read a stat actually where the Mets are like 51-0 and this year after they have led in the eighth inning or later. So... 
a very solid team that the New York Mets have. Um, I think I mentioned in in the last episode that this is probably a team I do not want to face uh, in a potential World Series matchup. And if I was a fan of a National League team, I would be praying that my team didn't see the New York Mets. Uh, Taiwan Walker was fantastic after giving up those two home runs. Um, he ended up going six innings. He gave up one more earned run, but that was it. Uh, you know, he had his back up against the wall a couple times, and he just finished out the inning, finished strong. To give yourself – to give six innings in a game where you were down 2 nothing with one out on the top of the first and get the win, uh, that is a solid performance. And then Adovino came in and got a couple outs, I believe five outs, and then Diaz the last four. So an overall pretty good team win for the Mets. Also the play of the year in that game by a fan wearing a Yankees hat and a Mets jersey. Uh, alcoholic beverage in the right hand. A leaping grab on the Eduardo Escobar home run to left field barehanded. Um, so if you haven't seen that one, you got to go check that out. I, that is, you know, there's a couple of ones where like guy caught the ball in the beer cup and guy caught the ball with baby in left hand while the baby was sleeping. That one tops it all. So if you haven't seen that one, uh, you got to go catch it. I think that was by far the best play I've seen a fan make ever. So there's a couple of good things, though, about the way that this week has went for the Yankees. Um, I think when when you kind of have like this this little stretch that brings you back down to earth, first of all, maybe it refocuses your team going down the stretch. Like, all right, listen, guys, like this hasn't been the way we've wanted things to work out for us. You know, we've played a couple of we've lost a couple of games and we've had some chances to win them all. You know, in Houston, you lose on a walk off. Uh, then you lose a two run game in. And I know that in the ninth inning, they went into that down like five and then Aaron Judge hit a bomb. But either way, the final score, you were down by two. Uh, in this series with the Mets you get walked off on and you lose by two or three, I forget. And you brought the tying run to the plate in the ninth inning, probably because you made Edwin Diaz sit down. I mean, he had that error. So it's good because you'll refocus. It's also good because it has been made very clear to Brian Cashman that he has to make a couple moves, and he did. Uh, he just got Andrew Benintendi, which – I'll get into uh, in one second. I just want to make another point about the Mets, which I guess is that Jacob deGrom's coming back. So to reinforce my statement about not wanting to see this team in the playoffs, uh, the lineup is very fantastic. You know, it's very well balanced. There's no like, you know, Pete Alonso is the best hitter in the in the lineup by far. But it's not like he's carrying, like, a load that is too much for him. Like, you know, you have Lindor in front of him who's having a good year at the plate, despite what people say. Uh, you've got Brandon Nimmo playing a good center field and 
doing an absolutely fantastic job out of the leadoff spot. He's probably he has to be seeing the most pitches of any player in the majors. Um, just working at bats, working at bats, and that definitely helped the Mets in Game One against Montgomery because. I'm pretty sure Brandon Nimmo flew out to start the game, but he saw eight pitches. So whatever they saw in those eight pitches, they found something because Marte hit a home run. Lindor got on base. Then Pete Alonso smoked one into the left center field gap. When Lindor scored, he whispered something to Eduardo Escobar. What does Eduardo Escobar do? Takes ball one. Next pitch, bomb. Left field, 4-2. So this team has shown a lot of resilience. Um, we'll see what happens when DeGrom comes back, if he's going to be healthy. Uh, Scherzer has been filthy. Taiwan Walker, if he can stay as hot as he has been, or I don't want to say as hot because he is a good pitcher, but he has also shown the, the ability to have a great first half and then kind of falter off in the second half. If he can stay like first half Taiwan Walker, this team is going to be tough. They're going to be very tough, um, especially with the way that that, you know, the the building was rocking and there was definitely some Yankee fans in the building at City Field. When this team has 100% Mets fans in the building in October, it's going to be tough. It really is going to be tough. So uh, shout out to the Mets. They got us here. Um, we'll see them at in the Bronx in a couple of weeks. And we'll see how, how they're doing uh, going down the stretch. I know I mentioned most people would be hating on the Mets, you know, and be giving excuses as to the reasons the Yankees lost. We got outplayed by a team who is, who is just as good as us, you know, like I mentioned before. Um, the record only shows what has happened in the games that have happened before, you know, Whatever the Yankees are, I think it's 66 and 33 right now. All that shows is what's happened in the first 99 games. Anything could happen in the next 60. You could go 30 and 30 and you could finish out, you know, 96 and 66. That would be a tough end of the season, to be completely honest with you. But it's possible. Don't act like it's not. I'm pretty sure in the last month of the season, the Yankees are 16 and 16. So anything could happen. I don't think there's a big gap between the Yankees, the Mets, the Dodgers, um, and the Astros, and I, and maybe the Braves as well. I think they're a really good team this year. So we're going to see how it plays out going down the stretch. Um, I guess one other thing I didn't mention about the Subway Series before I get into the Andrew Benintendi stuff um, is that Domingo Herman kind of looked pretty good. Uh, he did give up a home run in the first inning to Pete Alonzo that just got out at City Field right off the uh, right off of the railing in front of the Party City deck. But other than that, he went in. You know, he went four and two thirds, gave up two runs. I thought they should have let him try to finish the fifth. I know, you know, it would have looked bad had Pete Alonzo had another big shot off of him, whether it be a double or a home run, but. Um, I just think the way that the bullpen has looked and how, you know, how used up they've been would have been nice if they let Domingo go and try to get that last out. But nonetheless, Licky came in, did a job.
Clay Holmes came in, did a job, and then unfortunately, Wandy Peralta got walked off on. Uh, he has the only time that he's really looked not great has been when they've brought him in in the ninth inning. So maybe he needs to be just an eighth inning guy. Um, but in terms of Domingo Herman, uh, I feel like at the very least, he has earned Severino's spot until Severino is back from injury and you know his arm is worked back up to where it has to be. Um, which could be a while, you know, he, he, uh, Luis Severino missed almost an entire season with this injury that he has. And I know he's only on like the 10 or 15 day IL. There's a possibility he's not back until September 1st, maybe later. So I feel like at the very least, depending on what the Yankees do in the next four days with the trade deadline. He has at least earned a spot in the bullpen as like a middle relief, long relief guy. Um, and at, you know, at best for him, uh, he would be starting in Severino's spot until Severino's back. Um, so to go back to my point about this, this little tough stretch being good for the Yankees because they can refocus and not as well. It shows the front office they need to make some moves. Brian Cashman has made his first move of the trade deadline season, and it is for former Boston Red Sox and now also former Kansas City Royal, Andrew Benintendi. Now, the Royals are coming to the Bronx to face the Yankees starting later today, 7 o'clock first pitch. So Benintendi could be ready as early as later tonight. Um, definitely. Uh, by Friday, so that would be pretty cool. Um, I'm, I don't have the stats on this, but I always remember Benintendi coming to New York and absolutely killing the Yankees while he was a member of the Red Sox. Um, this year, having a pretty good season, he's third in the American League with a 321 batting average. His OPS is at a seven is at a point seven nine, so that's been pretty good. Um, he was a gold glover last year, and now he's having a, an average season in the field, so that's good. Um, and he will do a couple of things for the Yankees. First of all, another lefty bat in the lineup. This time, you know, the other lefties in the lineup in terms of Rizzo, Carpenter, and, uh, you know, now Gallo is probably not going to be seeing the field at all, but those are all power guys. Uh Benintendi in his career has shown power, but since the balls have been not juiced this year, only three home runs, which is still fine. Like I said, his average is up there. He's playing a good left field. Um, and his one issue, which is, you know, a reason that I thought maybe it wouldn't be a great idea to get him, um, was that he was unvaxxed, which means that if Toronto makes the playoffs and you have to go to Toronto, he can't play as well as any regular, which I'm not as worried about the regular season because someone will get the at-bats. But, you know, if we had to go to Toronto in this season again, in the regular season also, he wouldn't be there. So wasn't sure that it was the best move for the Yankees, but he was being considered by the Toronto Blue Jays. And now the reports are saying that he will be vaccinated um, at some point in the near future if he has not been already. So. That's good. Like I said, ends the chance that we see Gallo near the field in the playoffs. 
Um, right now, Aaron Hicks is kind of banged up. I know he's out there, but you can kind of tell when he's tracking the fly ball that his legs are giving him a lot of problems. So that'll be good to try to give him some time to heal up, especially if Stanton comes off the IL in a timely manner. Um, so we'll see how Andrew Benintendi gets acclimated to New York as a New York Yankee. Um, and now this kind of opens up a couple of different ways that the Yankees can go in terms of making the next moves. Um, I think pitching has to be number one. Um, and then I personally would like to see another shortstop, but, and I just kind of was looking at this based on, um, you know, I was just kind of looking at like best case scenarios, especially with the Juan Soto possibility at this point, right? Glaber Torres was not good at shortstop last year, but I think a part of the problem was that he was also so messed up at the plate that he was just compounding issues. And there's no way that right now, if you put Glaber Torres at shortstop, that he could be better or that he could be worse in the field than Isaiah Kana Falefa is. So in re in if you're looking at the Yankees lineup, if the playoffs started tomorrow, this is how I would line it up. LeMahieu at third, batting first, Judge in center, batting second. Rizzo is at first, batting third, stands in right field. Hopefully, he'll be able to do that going down the stretch. Um, and in the cleanup spot, Carpenter would be the DH batting fifth. You know, obviously, if he stays any sort of as hot as he's been, which at this point, he's been Barry Bonds level, which is absurd. Um, Torres batting sixth and playing second Benintendi in left field batting seventh Trevino at the catcher position batting eighth and Falefa for now at shortstop batting ninth now you'd have to think that Juan Soto is out of the question now for the Yankees um, just based on like the way that the roster is kind of made up right now but Let's just say that the Yankees are not going to prospect hug, which if you look at the Yankees prospects for what they have out of the top six players, three of them are shortstops. Only one of those players is going to be this, the Yankees shortstop in the future. And I think that they have Volpe as their number one guy. And then I think it's Peraza who's in triple A right now. And then I think after that, it's Trey Sweeney. Um, so I think there's a lot of prospects that you can unload for Juan Soto should you want to get him. Now, I'm not saying you got to go get him. Like, no, it's definitely best case scenario. I think pitching is more important. But with Giancarlo coming back from this injury, do you try to unload a couple of your pro top prospects Maybe a major league replacement like Joey Gallo, which, I mean, the Nationals would just kind of have to take that. Um, and the other thing that I thought was interesting is that the Yankees were linked to Patrick Corbin uh, when he was a free agent back in 2018 and 19. Now, he's been pretty bad. 
but Matt Blake has turned no-name relievers into household names. Um, I think if he works with with Patrick Corbin, maybe he can – I'm not saying he's going to, you know, revamp his career, but, you know, he can try to get outs for us, and we would want to take the contract off of the Nationals' hands because, first of all, Juan Soto has two more seasons after this year of arbitration, which means that he'll be at a much lower cost than he would have been had he been a free agent or something like that. Um, and it might, you know, cost us one less prospect if we're taking on this money. So in that scenario, then you just have to, you know, you're playing let's outslug them baseball, but DJ can go to second base. Glaber can go to short. Giancarlo can be the designated hitter and you can put Juan Soto in right. And then all of a sudden, you have easily the best lineup in baseball, and your pitching has already been pretty good this year. Um, so I would, you know, like I said, that's a best-case scenario move. Uh, I just kind of thought about it once I was looking for shortstop, uh, you know, trade possibilities, and not really any of them came up. Um, Labor Torres' season isn't really getting talked about enough, unfortunately. Once again, another big spot tonight where he had a big home run. I think I read a stat from Katie Sharp, who always does a great job with the Yes Network, um, giving them, you know, interesting stat tidbits during games and stuff via Twitter. Um, she said that since 2018, which is when Glaber Torres broke into the league, in the eighth inning or later, no one has hit a home run to tie or take the lead more than Glaber Torres. Torres has with eight home runs, including the one earlier tonight or last night, whatever you want to say it was. Um, you know, and it, it doesn't get talked about enough because you're talking about Judge Hall, uh, Hall of Fame. You're talking about Judge MVP season. You're talking about Rizzo with 20 homers. You're talking about Matt Carpenter with, you know, what with what he's ha- having happened to him, which is a career revitalization. You're talking about now Ben Tendi being traded to the Yankees, Trevino's story, uh, the pitching staff has been good. So there's been a lot of stories on the Yankees that have taken away from the Glaber Torres story, which a lot of people were counting him for dead. And now he has an 800 OPS playing a good second base and really turning into the player that the Yankees were projecting him to be, which is nice. So I think the need for the Yankees is pitching, um, whether it be, you know, I think a starter would help because you can then move, just say, a Talion or, you know, definitely Herman and even Severino when he comes back. Maybe you want to try to put him in like a little two or three inning roll out of the pen. Um I think a starter and some relievers would really go a long way for this team. Uh, One of the names that the Yankees have been linked to pretty frequently is Luis Castillo of the Cincinnati Reds. Um, He pitched against the Yankees before the all-star break. It was a seven inning performance where he gave up two hits, struck out eight, gave up one earned run. His season ERA is a two, eight, six after tonight or earlier tonight, whenever. He went seven innings against the Miami Marlins, gave up three earned runs, he gave up eight strikeouts, he gave up two homers, but that was the first time that 
that has happened all year. Like I was just mentioning with Patrick Corbin, you can only imagine when Luis Castillo gets to work with Matt Blake, how much better he can get. You know, he's been mostly working four-seam, two-seam, change-up. I think he has a slider but doesn't really use it much. Maybe, you know, we've seen it with a couple of the other pitchers that the Yankees have had that they have been working in cutters and sliders. Maybe that's a pitch that he adds to his repertoire and, you know, makes him a little nastier come playoff time. So I think he would be a great move for the Yankees. Um, I know I mentioned a bunch of other – I think I mentioned A.J. Puck of the Athletics last time. Um, There's a couple of other guys out there like David Robertson, who I know is a pretty old player, but I think there's something to be said about uh, playoff pedigree, especially as a pitcher. Um, So I think that would be a decent move, especially there's some other Cubs uh, prospects, Ian Happ. Um, that could, you know, maybe you get two of those guys for, for a decent prospect or something like that. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what Cashman does. There's a lot of ways he can go with the next couple of days. Um, I, I don't think that Benintendi is the only move the Yankees make. Last year, there was a lot of moves that were made. Not that we're head scratching, but, you know, we've seen a couple of moves from, from, Brian Cashman over the last couple of years where it was like, well, I've never heard of this guy. I don't, you know, I don't know anything about Clay Holmes. I don't know anything about Jose Trevino. I don't know anything about Luke Boyd. And they all turned out to be pretty good damn players. So maybe there's another guy coming like that. I'm not really sure. Um, Obviously there's the other big names out there. I know I mentioned the two biggest ones, Luis Castillo and Juan Soto. Uh, If you told me I had to choose one, I would choose Luis Castillo. I really like Juan Soto. I think he's going to, you know, if he's not already one of the best players in baseball, I think he could be the best player in baseball going forward. Um, But I know what it's going to cost. And I know that in terms of the way the team is made up, which, you know, there's Judge certainly in center field. If Stan is healthy, he can play out there. Benintendi can play out there. Hicks has played better than what people think he has been doing. He has had a solid season and deserves to get playing time down the stretch. Um, Gallo obviously has played himself out of a spot. And Matt Carpenter, I don't think he's an outfielder. I think they've stuck him out there because they've needed to the way the roster has looked the last couple of days, not even a week, a couple of days. Um, but I think between the way he's tracked some balls out there and his arm, I think if anything, you got to stick him at third base or you got to DH him depending on what happens with Stan's injury. So that's kind of all I've got in terms of the New York Yankees. Um, I'm not, I'm going to stay on baseball really quick because I want to talk about the Hall of Fame for a second. And then I'm going to finish up with very quick uh, points about the New York Jets. Well, I have New York Jets. And as well, I also was going to mention the Julio Jones signing by the Tampa Bay Bucks. Uh, and then I was going to finish up with Jalen Brown and Kevin Durant and that interesting 
little Woj bomb that dropped on, I think it was Monday. Well, it was actually a Shams bomb that dropped on Monday morning, maybe Tuesday morning. I forget which day, but the Hall of Fame for uh, in Cooperstown, the Baseball Hall of Fame was this weekend, the induction of the 2022 class, which included David Ortiz, Bud Fowler, Gil Hodges, Jim Cott, Minnie Minoso, Tony Oliva, and Buck O'Neill. Um, Ortiz was a first ballot Hall of Famer. He received 77% of the vote. Um, Clemens, Roger Clemens, Barry Bonds, all of those guys that have been linked to PEDs that were in their final year received no higher than 66%, which means now they will go on to the contemporary era, uh, not even on the ballot. So what's going to happen with the contemporary era is they're going to go through about 50 names, it seems like, and they're going to come up with eight that deserve to be on the ballot. This can include guys like Barry Bonds, Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire, Roger Clemens. There's also names on there like Kenny Lofton, uh, Don Mattingly, Keith Hernandez. So it's a real wide range of players. I think I also saw Fernando Valenzuela on there. Um, so they're going to come up with eight players that deserve to go on to this ballot, and then they're going to vote from there to see who got in. Now, from the committee that met this year, there were more, you know, every one of those names but David Ortiz made the Hall of Fame that way. So it's good to see that the Hall of Fame is not going to, you know, just let these guys pass. And then, I, you know, and the, the argument is like, okay, well, we didn't ever look at some of these stats. And now if you look at these guys' stats in the scope of Major League Baseball today, they look so good. But back in the day, they weren't. I feel like every name on the list, you know, I kind of went through their stats if I didn't know exactly what they did in the Major Leagues. And I feel like they were all deserving. I mean, Jim Cott had a 3-4-5 ERA and won 283 games as a pitcher. Uh, I think that's, you know, well-deserving of the call. Um, Minnie Minoso had a great career, uh, you know, and then, and then you had um, Bud Fowler and Buck O'Neill made it as executives, which I think that's pretty cool. So a couple of great names on this list. and couple of great names will be on the contemporary era ballot that will go on in 2023. Um, two interesting ones for the regular ballot in 2023. Um, well, first of all, A-Rod was on his first year of the ballot this year, and he received 34% of the vote. Now, that's a pretty small, um, I think that's a pretty small number. I don't think I he'll go up from 34% next year because the only other guy that I think will get a lot of votes besides him is Scott Rowland, who ended this year with 63%, and Carlos Beltran, who will be a first year guy on the ballot next year. Um, but other than that, I don't envision A Rod getting beaten out by anyone else. Um, I don't think he's going to make it next year. I don't, you know. Based on Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds, if they didn't make it, I'm not saying that A-Rod, you know, I guess if you had to rank those three players, you'd put Bonds first, maybe A-Rod second, Clemens third. 
But if those guys didn't make the list and they end with 66%, you know, I, I envision it being tough for A-Rod to go up from 34 to 75 at some point in the next 10 years, unless the view of uh, that era and those players changes, you know, vastly, which could come via the contemporary era ballot that could bring in guys like Bon Sosa, McGuire, and Roger Clemens. But, you know, I think they've also got to look at some of these guys who also kept it clean and had good, good careers like Don Mattingly, Keith Hernandez, which they were mentioning on the SNY broadcast uh, on Tuesday and between the Yankees and the Mets. So we'll see how that all goes. Uh, one more point about the Hall of Fame. I thought uh, Mad Dog Russo on High Heat on MLB Network made a, a very good point. I think the major leagues have to find a way that either everybody plays at 1 o'clock which I think that would actually be kind of tough just based on that there's two coasts. And, you know, if you play at one o'clock on the East coast, that's 10 AM on the West. And that might be tough for some teams. So he mentioned, you know, having the entire day off and everybody watching the hall of fame speeches and stuff. I think that would be a great way to grow the game and to learn about the players, you know, of the past, you know, I'm sure a lot of the kids or younger people these days have seen, heard, you know, watched David Ortiz on the broadcast on Fox, whatever it is, they've heard about his career. But these other guys, Fowler, Hodges, Jim Cott, Minnie Minoso, Tony Oliva, Buck O'Neill, I mean, that could be the way that some of these younger kids learn about these guys. So I like that idea. I think they should try to make that work. We'll see if they do. Um, So that will conclude my spiel on the MLB. I know it was a lot of uh, Yankee talk. You can pretty much expect that going forward. Um, You know, I'll definitely be mixing in NFL and college football as it comes. Um, And I'll mix in other topics in the MLB right now. You know, I'm sure the next episode I'll talk a lot about what happened at the deadline, who stayed, where they were, who went, um, you know, what moves were made for the Yankees specifically. You know, like I said, I'll talk about any MLB topic. It will be a lot easier for me to talk about the Yankees because that's who I, you know, I'm a fan of. I watch the games. Um, But nonetheless, You'll hear a lot about the Yankees. You'll hear a lot of MLB. And as football season comes, you'll hear a lot about that as well. Speaking of football, the NFL returned to camp uh, on Monday. And I don't really have that much news in terms of the entire league outside of Julio Jones signed with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Somehow this team ends up with all of, you know, the veterans that are looking for a chance to win some, some championships. Uh, Antonio Brown was kicked off the team last year after he exited shirtless uh, in New York in week 16, 17, one of the, I, I forget. It was at the end of the season uh, for refusing to go in the game. And somehow they one up themselves and they end up with Julio Jones. Now, 
Julio's been pretty hurt over his last couple of seasons, but if he can stay out there with that trio between him, Chris Godwin, and Mike Evans, uh, that is a pretty good offense for Tom Brady to run back. I know Gronk is retired, but I don't know exactly who they added at tight end either. I cannot imagine that they stayed with Cameron Bray as the starter, but as long as the Buccaneers' defense is like half decent, uh, they will be in a pretty good shot or a pretty good spot, excuse me, to make a run at the end of the year in the NFL playoffs. Um, in terms of the Jets, some big news um, coming out of the first couple of days of camp. First of all, they had press conferences on the first day only, and there was a couple of interesting things that I picked out. Um, first, the head coach of the New York Jets, Robert Sala, announced that Mekhi Becton will be the starting right tackle after he played his rookie year at left tackle. Um, George Fant had a great year at left tackle last year in Mekhi's absence, and they're going to start him at left tackle this year. And because Beckman is so young, they're going to move him around to the right side with second-year player Elijah Vera Tucker moving from left guard to right guard in the same offseason. So that'll be cool to see two young prospects for the Jets on the same side of the line, both of which have not played with each other because Mekhi Beckton's second year was spent off the field with a knee injury uh, while AVT had a great rookie season. So we'll see them on the right side of the line. Uh, McGovern will be the starting center once again. And on the left side, Lakin Tomlinson, who was signed from the San Francisco 49ers, as well as George Fant at left tackle. So that'll be a pretty good line for Brees Hall and Michael Carter to run behind, as well as to protect Zach Wilson. So I thought it was interesting that they announced that right off the bat. They announced that there's not going to be, you know, any sort of competition between the two. Uh, I thought that was pretty interesting to see after most of the talk about Mekhi Becton this offseason has been that the Jets front office and coaching staff has been upset with the way he was handling his injury and his weight. And then, you know, they announced that he's going to be the starting right tackle, no competition. They say that he looked in tremendous shape. They take him off the pup list after the first day of camp, as well as Carl Lawson, who also was injured in camp last year and missed the entire season. So those were all good things for the Jets as well as they talked to Zach Wilson about his uh, off-the-field news that happened with the whole uh, ex-girlfriend saying that he was in, um, he was doing intimate things with his mother's friends. Um, he said that he tuned it all out and that he's never been in a better mental spot and he's prepared to do his job, which is just 111th of the offense. I think all of those things passing the test in the New York media, especially after a wild off season. So I feel like there's a, some excitement for the jets this year. Uh, to, I think I mentioned in the last episode to just play meaningful football games as the season's winding down. 
Um, maybe, you know, sneak into a playoff spot with the NFL playoffs featuring seven teams this year on each side. Um, now I'm excited for September 11th when the Jets will host the Baltimore Ravens in week one. I think the other news of the week was that Lamar Jackson was getting disrespected, like they were putting out, you know, top 10 quarterback list or top 10 player list, whatever it was, and Lamar Jackson wasn't on it. And they were basically trashing him because he can't throw. Well, as dumb as it sounds, and I know that they say quarterback stat, uh, the quarterback, the wins aren't a quarterback stat, which is entirely true. At the same time, if you win games as a quarterback and you can do it without, you know, having the most accurate arm and you can do it with your athleticism, I don't think anyone's complaining if you're winning games, if you're going to the playoffs now. Would the Ravens like to make a, a longer run in the playoffs? Sure. You know, the one season where Lamar took over in the middle of the year, uh, I think he had a rough time in the playoffs. And then the year where they were the one seed, they got bounced in the first round. So, yes, is that one thing against Lamar Jackson that he hasn't had playoff success? Sure. But, I mean, let's not – you know, hype up some of these other quarterbacks like they're hot shit. Uh, I think he's definitely one of the top two or three athletes in the NFL. Uh, in open field, good luck. Like, he is going to – he is the modern-day Barry Sanders with the football. Like, if, if you try to tackle him, listen, maybe Barry Sanders could run you over and Lamar Jackson can't do that but you cannot catch him. If he's in the open field, he is running by you. He's juking you. He's spinning you. Whatever it is, you're not tackling him. And he has made that an absolute weapon for himself. Um, his arm was good. You know, I think his arm strength is there. I think the accuracy can be worked on. I mean, you saw Josh Allen get a lot more accurate from college to the NFL. I don't think there's any reason that Lamar Jackson can't do it as well. Um, so we'll see what happens there. I, I, I thought it was so crazy because I really haven't tuned in to uh, – I haven't been tuning in much to, like, sports talk TV shows, but, you know, most of the talk was – between this topic, which was Lamar Jackson getting disrespected by uh, NFL defensive coordinators and coaches saying that he can't throw the ball. And the other topic, which we'll move on to the NBA now, which was a Shams bomb early on Monday morning. Uh, Jalen Brown was rumored in a trade for Kevin Durant. So it would have sent Jalen Brown I think one or two first-round picks, Derek White uh, to Brooklyn for Kevin Durant. Now, Jalen Brown responded with, like, a clown emoji or a laughing emoji, whatever it was. He wasn't too happy that those reports came out. So we'll see if that leads to any turmoil in Boston. Um, if you're a Nets fan, like, at this point, you saw what happened when your team had no depth. They can't win. You can't win an NBA game with no depth. 
You can't, well, you can win no, an NBA game with no depth. You cannot win an NBA playoff series with no depth. It, it's happened one time ever with the, in terms of the physical shape of the athlete, the best player that we've ever seen in LeBron James. You, so you can't do it. It's never, it's happened once before, maybe. You can't do it. You saw what happened. The Nets played the Celtics this year in the first round. Celtics swept them, easy style. So if you're a Nets fan, you get a younger player in Jalen Brown. You got picks. You got, you know, a decent rotation player in Derek White. He had a good playoff series for all of those different um, – in all of those series, he was playing great defense on what, whoever they asked him to play on. He had a couple of games where he almost got up to like 20 points. So that would be a good player for the Nets to have. You want to try to build depth. Maybe Kyrie wants to stay. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe you got to blow it up. So either way, I think those would be some good moves for the Nets. I thought it was definitely interesting that that stuff came out when it did. Um, And so we'll see what happens with the NBA. There's a couple of other guys being rumored to be moved, including Kyrie Irving, Russell Westbrook, Donovan Mitchell. So we'll keep our our eyes peeled on that stuff. Um, In terms of what I've got going on and my schedule for the next podcast, uh, let's see. Have to figure. So this will go out early in the morning on Thursday. So we'll say that I'll record the next one on Monday or Tuesday at some point. So we'll say Gobi Great is back on a two-time-a-week basis, coming out Thursdays or Fridays and Mondays or Tuesdays. We'll finalize that as we keep putting episodes out. Like I said, I don't want to overwhelm myself with a strict schedule. At the same time, planning everything has definitely made things easier for me. So we'll see what happens We'll say for now, look for me at some point between Monday and Tuesday. Um, For the weekend, I've got a lot of stuff going on. I played golf this last weekend, which that was pretty nice. Got to play with my cousins, and I'm shooting now uh, a lot more consistently under 100, which is good for me um, because I'm a competitive person that does not take golf as a nice relaxing four hours away from reality. I take it as uh, my competitive output for the week. And so to shoot, you know, I shot 97 and 94 on my last two rounds. I'm hyped up about that. Um, In terms of the weekend, the two baseball leagues that I work for are both in the playoffs now for the collegiate summer leagues. Um, I will be, calling the Bergen Metros and the Atlantic Collegiate Baseball League's wildcard game on Friday night. You can catch all of these games at Mixler, which is M-I-X-L-R dot com slash Bergen, which is B-E-R-G-E-N Metros dot com. So Mixler dot com slash Bergen Metros. You can catch the Bergen Metro's ACBL wildcard game on Friday night at 6 o'clock. You can catch the Metropolitan Collegiate Baseball League's um, 
semifinals on Saturday. On Sunday, I have my men's league baseball playoff game, but if the Metros win on Friday, they will play a doubleheader Saturday, which is an away game. I will not be there for that. Um, and should they not get swept and it split, they would host game three on Sunday at home, hopefully at night so that I could call it. Um, so that would be great. And then on Monday, the MCBL championship is at night on Monday. Um, and so we'll see how the playoffs kind of shape out. The sixth seed, the DiMaggio Bombers, in the Metropolitan Collegiate Baseball League, who finished the summer at 3-18-1. Mercy ruled the three seed, the Randolph Chiefs, uh, in the first round tonight, as well as the Hudson River Hawks taking a 2-1 victory over the Pascag Valley Cats. So now the first seed, Creek Monsters, will host the DiMaggio Bombers. I believe that game will be at 10.30 in the morning uh, in at Breslin Field in Lyndhurst, New Jersey. So if you want to come out, you come out. If you want to tune in, the link is mixler.com slash Bergen Metros. It would be greatly appreciated if you could tune in. I'll be calling games on Saturday. I'll be calling a game on Friday night. I'll be calling the Metropolitan Collegiate Baseball League Championship Monday night. Um, and I hope that you all will tune in for those. I want to thank you for tuning in to Go Be Great, episode 11, once again presented to you by Hardo Sports. Um, so I guess with the schedule of the MCBL, we'll say not Monday. You will hear from me Tuesday, um, which I believe is August 2nd, which is the trade deadline. So that would actually work out perfect. And I am just confirming, and that is true. So. You'll hear from me at some point on Tuesday, August 2nd, for the MLB trade deadline, um, as well as any other topics that arise in the next couple of days. Once again, thank you for tuning in, and I will see you guys on Tuesday.